1: Good afternoon, Chris. Uh, good to talk again. Lots on the news agenda today. Um, we had some data uh, published by the Central of Statistics Office yesterday, uh, based on Eurostat data published just over a week ago about the cost of living across Europe. So, some pretty stark messages there for Ireland. Uh, We had UK trade and balance of payments data for the first quarter today, which also paint a pretty stark picture of the impact that Brexit is having on the UK trade performance. Uh, This week, we've had the ECB's annual policy forum in Portugal, where the European Central Bank, the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England officials were making some strong noises um lots going on on equity and commodity markets and um there's a good story about Boris doing the rounds that I think is worth a quick mention if i could start by looking at the cost of living data that eurostat published and that the cso picked up on and re- sent out as a separate release rating relating to ireland yesterday um eurostat basically tries to compare the cost of living across the European Union and some other countries, um, and it gives a breakdown for a range of different products. But there are some incredibly stark headlines for Ireland. Um, as you know, we're convulsed here at the moment with um, issues around the cost of living crisis, serious pressure coming on from Sinn Féin to immediately implement a package to address the cost of living problem here. Uh, there's a suggestion from government that the budget may be brought forward a couple of weeks from its likely original date of October 11th. So that's trying to alleviate some of the political pressure that's coming from Sinn Féin to introduce a cost of living package immediately. So the government seems intent, as I think is the correct thing to do, to wait until the budget before um, any measures are announced. But getting back to the Eurostat data, um, it showed that Ireland and Denmark had the highest price levels in the EU 27 um, in 2021, 40 percent above the EU average. OK, um, and we're, we're up there with Denmark. And then if you look at the food component of that, um, Ireland is the third most expensive country for food in the EU 27. Um, with Luxembourg and Denmark just above us. And we're the second highest in the Eurozone with just Denmark, sorry, Luxembourg above us. Of course, Denmark is not in the Euro area. Um, For non-alcoholic beverages, we're the second highest in the EU 27 and we are the highest in the Euro area. Um, Food prices are 17% above the EU average and all food prices, with the exception of fish, are significantly higher than the EU average. Um, milk, cheese and eggs, for example, are 25% more expensive than the EU 27 average. Bread and cereals 20% higher. Alcohol is the second most expensive in the EU 27 and the Eurozone, and it's just over double the EU average. So Ireland, uh, I looked at a colour-coded map um that eurostat published and they give a purple color to countries that are more than 127% more than 120%, excuse me, above the EU27 average. So three countries that are not in the EU. Iceland is at 150%, Norway 146%, Switzerland is the highest at 167%. And then within the EU, Sweden is at 128, Finland, 126, Luxembourg, 132. So Ireland, an incredibly expensive country. And um, this poses the question as to why that is the case. And I'm not certain what the answer is, but I've just been banding around with a few ideas in my head. Um, If you look at the food supply chain Um, Here in this country, we have at the bottom of the pile, if you want to say that, the primary food producer, in other words, the farmer. Then in the middle of the supply chain, you have the processor. And then at the top of the supply chain, you have the retailer who deals directly with the consumer. So we have seen, of course, in the last while, a significant increase in input costs in farming, and that is resulting in higher output prices for agriculture produce. Uh, but that's very recently. That doesn't really relate to what happened during 2021, which the Eurostat data picks up on. That's a more of a recent phenomenon. So I think you can bandy about some of the ideas. I mean... Um, You could argue that we are a small island nation, um, a market of just over 5 million people, which is a relatively small market. So possibly that means that uh, we cannot achieve the sorts of economies of scale that bigger countries can achieve. Uh, There's also issues around the cost of doing business. So in areas like wages, insurance, commercial rates, rents, um, Ireland is consistently... Uh, pretty high on a lot of those metrics. So if if you take into account that if the costs of doing business are very high in this country, that will obviously feed into higher consumer prices. Um, there is also, I guess it'd be interesting to find out exactly what's happening at the retail end um, on a comparative basis. A few years back, Tesco was reputed to have called Ireland Treasure Island because of the margins they could earn here relative to the UK. So there's lots of possible explanations. Uh, We don't quite know uh, the true story, but the the message is pretty stark. You know, up there, Ireland is up there with the Scandinavian countries and Luxembourg as an incredibly expensive country in which to live. And I just posed two questions to you, Chris. Do you think, number one, as a country, we can justify that kind of status. And uh, secondly, what do you think the reasons for it
0: might be? Well, it kind of depends what you mean by justification. Uh, I think part of the explanation must be that the countries that you listed as also having high prices are all rich countries. And the fact is that Ireland is a rich country these days. Hard that some people might find that to believe. Um, But I think you're on the right track analytically as to why that is the case because you've just got to look at two things costs and profit margins and you mentioned a lot about costs the costs of my learned friends the legal profession insurance you know these sorts of things that attract headlines almost every day professional services generally are quite expensive in ireland so these are all input costs for businesses of one kind or another wages though are not particularly high in ireland we know that on a comparative basis. So I don't think it's a wages story. The so, minimum wage the minimum wage is quite high relative to Europe. Yes, but probably doesn't account for enough of this to, for it to be a prime cause of high costs because um, Ireland has always been a high cost country. It's moved up and down these league tables, but as far as I'm aware, it's always been at or near the top or certainly in the top quartile for a long, long time. And people have always remarked about how high prices there are in Ireland and you mentioned Tesco years ago now talking about it in terms of Treasure Island and that's a story of course about retail margins that predated the arrival of the Liddles and Aldis of this world of course which have competed some of these profit margins away but in order to be able to fully understand the picture you're looking at the end result of a long process as you say a long supply chain and somebody somewhere is making a lot of money I suspect but I don't know um, so we need data on profit margins for each stage of the production process. So you talked about domestic food. Um, if, something is, if something is produced in Ireland and ends up on the shelves of Tesco or Lidl as being at the most expensive of its type in the EU, or almost the most expensive, then is it a story about the costs through that supply chain, or is it a story about profit margins through the supply chain? I don't know the answer to that. I suspect it's a bit of both. But I suspect you'll find that profit margins are a big part of the story for for somebody in this supply chain. And Chris, can, can I may I interrupt a second and just clarify something? Uh,
1: this cost of food it includes domestically produced food and imported food,
0: of which we do import quite a lot because we don't produce yeah. some stuff. So that's why I was careful to, to yeah. stress that you know the domestically su- supplied food. The only reason, the only two possible reasons why. That, that food is higher than you would get it elsewhere in Europe. So, you know, a lump of Irish cheese versus a lump of French cheese, for example, and so on. Somewhere along in that supply chain, somebody's costs are too high, which might be the same thing as saying somebody's profits are too high, because costs are usually somebody else's profits or somebody else's revenues, at least. So something is going wrong somewhere. For imports, well, you might just be suffering from being far away from the producers and transport costs are being added, but uh, the importers' margins, again, might be something worth looking at. Overall, you'd say that they could be indicative that Ireland is not a particularly competitive economy, because margins, profit margins, are a story essentially about competition. The wider the profit margin, the less competition there is, and vice versa. So we need a lot more data, probably granular at the industry or even the firm level, which certainly the latter we rarely get unless we're stock market analysts. So it's a story that's been around for a long time and has complex answers. The the alcohol story that you mentioned, that's gonna be at least partly taxation driven. The taxation of alcohol is gonna be a prime reason why alcohol is so expensive in Ireland. So there, there are gonna be lots of factors, Jim.
1: Okay, but it's... Uh... It's I think it's an interesting story and it's one I'd certainly like to do more work on. Uh, Chris, moving to the United Kingdom, um, and br- brings us back to our old favorite topic on Brexit. Uh, we got balance of payments and trade data for the first quarter of this year. Um, the UK, the headline is that the UK trade performance reached its worst level since records began. Uh, there was a balance of payments deficit of 8.3% of GDP. And that compares to a quarterly average of 2.6% last year. Um, and it is the worst, it's the widest balance of payments, quarterly balance of payments deficit since records began in 1955. Okay, apparently the ONS has made some changes to its measurement of imports particularly. But, um, and also gold prices have had some impact on the balance of payments flows. But if you adjust for factors like that, the deficit in the first quarter was still 7.1% compared to an average of 2.4% in the four quarters of last year. And the story, of course, is that in the first quarter, there was a 4.4% decline in real exports from the United Kingdom. That is the value of exports um, adjusted for inflation. So it's it's the volume effectively. And there was a 10.4% increase in real imports. Um, As I say, it is the worst quarterly trade performance since records began. And it is certainly indicative of the fact, uh, probably that Brexit is causing serious distortions and problems for trade in and out of the United Kingdom. So the notion that Brexit was going to deliver a massive economic boom to the UK, as was promised by the pro-Brexit people, um, and it just suggests that England has paid a, well, the UK Well, sorry, I should specify Great Britain actually has paid a very high price for this so-called restoration of its sovereignty. Uh, I always believed that from an economic perspective, Brexit from a UK perspective was absolutely bonkers as a notion. And I think every piece of economic data we are seeing is backing that up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the data were awful. Um, they come with caveats. The ONS itself said that uh, they were unsure about this data. Normally, a current account deficit at 8 point something or 7 point 1, as you say, if you exclude the gold shipments, uh, those sorts of numbers are truly horrendous and would normally cause a collapse in your exchange rate. The exchange rate hasn't moved very much today because I suspect the markets are looking at these and saying they can't be right. They are just so bad. The possibility is, of course, that they will get revised. These numbers are always revised. And the ONS did uh, speak about a number of caveats. They're uncertain as well. But it's quite clear that this data, along with other data that we've been having, tells us that exporters in the UK to the EU are experiencing an awful lot of difficulties And all of the predictions made by people like me and you and lots of others about this sort of thing are all coming to pass. The question I would put back to you is so what? We said it, it's happening, but A, nobody seems to care. Nobody seems, certainly from the foreign exchange market point of view, to notice. You won't get banner headlines in the media about this tomorrow, maybe in the Financial Times. And the Brexiteers, most important of all, will deny it. They will virtually describe this as fake news, that Trumpian expression about all sorts of things to do with objective truth and facts and data. They will just say, no, it's it's distorted, it's wrong, we don't believe it, Britain is great and everything is going to be fine. And that's the level of denialism that we have in the UK right now about anything bad news associated with Brexit. The Brexiteers deny it and say it's fake news and lots of people who should actually be jumping up and down about this, and I'm thinking in particular Keir Starmer and the Labour Party, stay stunned. They say absolutely nothing because they know that the Brexit debate remains toxic. It's how Boris Johnson wants to fight the next election, believe it or not. He wants to do the Brexit, get Brexit done again, bizarrely. Uh, Orwellian, isn't it? I think that overused expression applies here. They just want to keep on fighting the Brexit wars. And if you're going to keep on fighting the Brexit wars to gain political advantage, you have to deny all of these negative stories. They're not stories, they're facts. You have to say that they're wrong. That's the rather bizarre situation that we find ourselves in the UK. This sort of thing doesn't seem to matter. Nobody cares. On we go. But eventually, if if 8% of GDP is your current account deficit going forward in a sustained sort of way... The one thing I would say to you about it is that it is utterly unsustainable. It will cause severe problems. In the past, it would have caused a sterling crisis. And I think that's the number one candidate going forward to look for, is that if these current account numbers are repeated over the course of the next year or two, then you think sterling is weak at the moment? Just watch what will happen. And that's that's going to be the barometer of, of the extent to which this data is correct or not if i mean it can't you cannot run a current account deficit of 8% of gdp without something giving my guess is going to be that it's going to be the currency it could be something else but in the past such deficits would have been described as utterly unsustainable and would have generated something of a financial and in particular foreign exchange crisis so it's real but nobody cares apart from you and me jim
1: I heard um, Sajid Khan, the Lord Mayor of London, in a London debate a couple of days ago, arguing that the United Kingdom should re-enter the single market. But uh, so, some members of the audience or some the panel just looked at him incredulously because uh, that boat has certainly sailed at this stage. The In Portugal this week, we've been having the annual policy forum of the European Central Bank And the heads of the European Central Bank, the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States and the Bank of England have sort of come out arguing that rapid action to tackle inflation is now necessary before it becomes embedded. embedded. And Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, um, is suggesting that there might be another 50 basis point or half percent increase in U.S. rates in July following the three quarters of one percent increase we saw uh, this month. Uh, I, I I find it kind of strange, to be honest. I mean, central bankers coming out saying that rapid action needs to be taken. I mean, they are the central bankers. I mean, why are they coming out and saying this? Why don't they just get on with it? Because, uh, I don't know, I, I, I find some sort of a, a disconnect here. And reading between the lines, one gets the distinct impression that central bankers really having the bogs what's going on at the moment. They haven't a clue what to do with policy. Uh, they don't know how to react to embedded that's risking becoming, in, inflation that's risking becoming embedded in the system and uh, economies that are clearly under serious threat at the moment. So am I, I being a little bit cruel here, but as I say, I, I do get the sense that um, central bankers really don't have a notion about what to do with policy. Uh, And that worries me, I have
0: to say. If it wasn't so serious, I'd laugh. Because I I think that we lived through, you and I anyway, the era of the all-knowing, all-powerful, godlike central banker, beginning with Paul Volcker all the way back in the early 1980s, who cured the 1970s inflation with interest rate hikes. And then we had the era where central banks in the UK, for example, were made independent inflation targeting became the norm and the way in which you targeted inflation was by using interest rates and giving central banks the independent authority to manipulate interest rates and they made a good job of it. On the face of it the results were good. Um, a bit mixed in some cases the ECB has only just recently met its two percent target for example and I, I think the ECB deserves a lot more criticism over its history than it actually does get but what the heck what do I know? But It was the era of the all-powerful, all-knowing, omniscient central banker. They were celebrities. We had the cult of Alan Greenspan, who was the boss of the Federal Reserve for years and years and years. And, you know, when he spoke, the world's financial markets moved. We had in the UK, we had somebody called Mark Carney, a Canadian celebrity central banker who became very well-known, became a household name in the UK. So these people became godlike creatures, in that they were the ones that controlled everything. I think we're now witnessing the demise of the omniscient central banker.
1: You have said and repeated many times about we don't understand what causes inflation. Um, one issue or one item of inflation that's becoming really controversial in this country is the price of hotel bedrooms. Uh there has been a dramatic increase over recent months and indeed I saw one of the hotel groups this morning uh reporting that over the last couple of months their re- revenues are from per hotel room are up significantly. Uh I, I was my reaction to that was uh wow, so what? I mean, given the sort of prices increasing price increases we've seen, what the hell do you expect to happen but revenue per room to increase? But I've heard various representatives from the hotels industry on radio trying to justify why hotel prices have increased, and they are suggesting it is because there is a lack of supply of hotel rooms. Um, a lot of hotel rooms have been taken out to look after both direct provision and Ukrainian refugees, and that as those rooms have been taken out of supply, prices have started to rise but i I actually don't get demand and supply in hotel rooms I mean surely the price of a hotel room is what the seller of that hotel room deems it to be it's not as if the two of us rush into jury's hotel here in dublin there's one room left and the two of us engage in a bidding war to get that hotel room somebody was telling me um in the last couple of days that they met two germans at dublin airport and the germans were saying i'm not surprised people are queuing to get out of this country that we've been plundered here over the last week In terms of prices. There's a really huge amount of short-term thinking going on here in the Irish tourist industry because, uh, you know, if we continue to price it as we're pricing it, we are going to kill the goose that laid the golden egg. I I think there's no doubt whatsoever about that. Um, I also, you know, I I would really worry that the prices that they're paying that They look at the quality of what they got, which is patchy. Some is very good. Some is not so good. And they will make a decision that we ain't going back to this country again. So once you lose a tourist, I think you lose a tourist forever, pretty much. So I think there's so much short-term thinking. We really are in danger of doing irreparable damage to our tourism product. And I think the hotels industry is certainly at the forefront of that. I mean, I get... The pressures hotels have been under in terms of the impact of COVID, uh, the impact of input costs, labour problems and so on, energy costs and the rest that we've discussed. But uh, I, I would just seriously, seriously question what they are doing at the moment. They are going to destroy something that is really important for regional economic activity, particularly Uh,
0: But there you go, we'll see how that pans out. If I might just add a personal note, Jim, I wonder, and it's a question, genuine question, whether this is a regional versus Dublin problem, because I just booked a couple of nights for a hotel in Dublin in August, presumably peak tourist season. I looked at all the prices of all the hotels I normally stay in when I go to Dublin, and they looked as per the last time I did it and the time before I did it. And I got a hotel what I considered, at a price I considered to be eminently fair and reasonable. So could it be that these tourists are getting ripped off outside Dublin? Or am I just basing this on one small data point?
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I hear horrendous stories about hotel prices in Killarney at the moment. Um, but I also hear horrendous stories about hotel prices in Dublin. So I, I don't know. I think, I think you may be lucky. There is a general view out there that a lot of hotels have increased prices dramatically. But there are others then. You know, I know one down in Waterford, for example, that is still very, very competitive. A couple of friends of mine stayed there recently and found it very good value. So um, it's, it's, it's probably um, not widespread across the board. But I, de- I definitely think coming on top of these cost of living issues, the price of food and so on, and um, the cost of doing business that we really, really do need to be careful that, you um, if we are going to charge Swiss prices, that we, we actually deliver Swiss quality of service. Um, a couple of things, Chris, before we wrap up. One is I see Bitcoin is on track for its worst quarterly performance in more than a decade. 58% drawdown this quarter, which is just about to end tonight, which is the worst performance since the third quarter of 2011. So that, that that is an ongoing story. But I see Noah Smith um podcasting or his blog this morning actually about um Bitcoin and he's tracked all the drawdowns we've seen over the last few years in Bitcoin Bitcoin, excuse me. And there have been three or four um and Bitcoin has subsequently come back, but not as much, didn't make up the losses that were made. So but but um, and he's sort of suggesting that at some stage you know Bitcoin will bottom out again and that there will be another surge in its price. Um, so it's 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 for Bitcoin investors it's it's not a game that's over but certainly very very difficult trading conditions and keep the smile off your face, Chris. Um, you have a good story about Boris. I believe you'd like to share.
0: Yeah, just before we get on to that, um, the Bitcoin thing, of course, I, I take Smith's point very well, which is that it could well stage a comeback now. There are people in the markets who say that the leverage, the, the money that people borrowed to buy Bitcoin is, is close to being washed out of the system and that there are a whole rake of new buyers out there waiting, which is perfectly possible. Um, But I would still say what I've said all along, which is that they um, ultimately most of them, not necessarily all of them, but most of them will be disappointed because if Bitcoin goes up again in the way that it did in the past, I think at risk of making a forecast, it'll come down again in the way that it has really over the course of this year, really since last November. I think it was when it peaked. And it's not just Bitcoin that's in trouble. Of course, stock markets are also slumping. This is one of the worst first halves of a calendar year for US stocks since records began. It's actually the fifth worst, and it's the worst since 1970. So these are grim times for for financial markets. I think that it's all connected to, obviously, the inflation interest rate story that we've spoken about often. I think that markets are getting really worried, like us, that the central banks don't know what they're doing and are going to make a mess of it. And one of the ways in which they're going to make a mess of it is I think they're going to over-egg it. And I think that one of the markets Apart from Bitcoin and stocks, that is just as vulnerable to a big slowdown is, and you've guessed it, Jim, the global property market. But we've talked about that a lot, so I'll leave it and I'll move on to your next question, which is about the Boris Johnson story. There's a wonderful commentator on the radio, national radio in the UK, called James O'Brien. He narrated something this morning. He reported. Uh, this is hearsay, so if any of my learned friends are thinking of prosecuting me for slander, then please, I'm just repeating what somebody else has said about something that was written in a book, which is that not only um, did Boris Johnson try to get his then-mistress and ultimately his wife a highly paid job in government in recent years, uh, the story there is that the Sunday Times last week printed that story, and then at a request from, I don't know, but we can probably guess, the story was then spiked. It did actually appear in an early edition and then disappear. And the fear, according to James O'Brien, by Downing Street and people close to Boris Johnson was not so much at the story about the job, but about an earlier incident which had been reported and this is reported. I'm not saying it's true. I'm just saying that this is what James O'Brien said. I'm very conscious of, of getting it wrong. The story goes that a member of the House of Commons walked into Boris Johnson's office in the House of Commons. and There he was with his then mistress performing some kind of a sex act on him. And my apologies to the, our listeners that have strong sensitivities to these things. I've no idea whether it's true, but the mere fact that these sorts of things are now being... Narrated, spoken about on national radio stations in the UK tells you something about the state to which we have descended. Chris,
1: I am stunned into silence. I think we call it there. A couple of things I want to say. One is, um, I hope I wasn't too uh, jumpy and hesitant today, but I've just finished exams this week and my head is absolutely wrecked at this stage from late nights and tough exams. Um, I'm off to Waterford uh, tomorrow evening. On Saturday, I am doing for Dungarvan Hospice this annual mountain walk from Clonmel to Dungarvan, which is the Cumra Crossing. So I'll be back breathing in the air of my beautiful county. And I hope that actually clears my head uh, before we sit down to do our next podcast next week. So Chris, have a great weekend and uh, great to talk again. Cheers, Jim. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms.
0: Selling a little or a lot?